Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast hosted by me, Evan and Tom. How are you guys? Our first topic today will be hydroxychloroquine, describing the saga from being touted as a miracle drug to being discontinued by the World Health Organization in treating COVID-19. Okay, so putting some light on this whole uh, hydrochloroquine information flowing in. Yeah, yeah, and okay. putting it to bed in a way. So I want to kind of give a timeline of how, what, what happened from where it started to where it ended. Uh, and just to kind of understand why it was used and why did it even be recommended in the first place? Okay, interesting. I have written a Facebook post about it because I was getting sick <laughs> about all the misinformation uh, coming out and then I pressured all of my friends to share it. So yeah. There was a spread of information. So you have you know a lot of this already. So I'm uh, speak, maybe I'm not a lot. <laughs> well, not the story, but I think you know a lot about the the mechanisms and stuff like that. So um, uh, yeah, you can yeah. add bits to what fill in the gaps, maybe of what I what I had been talking about. Uh, yeah. And what were you looking into, Tom? So uh, I came across this paper published in the Lancet. Uh, it's about zero prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 in Spain. So as we all know from the news, Spain was Spain and Italy was one of the two countries that were hit pretty severely by the pandemic. Now that it's Spain, it's kind of coming out of it. They published the zero prevalence study, kind of looking into what proportion of the population developed the antibodies. Yeah. So you're just going to kind of discuss what, what happened, what the implications for the study is and kind of just give uh, a general discussion about so zero I, prevalence. I was really, I was really amazed by the way they designed the study itself so i was uh, i was hoping to say something about that but but you the whole thing it's gonna kind of narrow it down itself to the concept of herd immunity yeah and whether we can uh, start thinking about herd, herd immunity in terms of COVID 19. great um before we get into the headlines for this week we just say we just said we'd have a quick discussion about how we're getting on so how are you getting on tom how is your your week in uh, PhD yes. life. <laughs> PhD life. Uh, it was fine. Uh, certain things have been moved forward with my project. Uh, it was busy with the experiments because now we kind of com- all coming back to the labs. Yeah. The restrictions are a little bit less. So uh, it's a, it's a bit, bit, big race uh, to book cabinets and book labs because uh, there is still some limit to how many people can be inside. So you want yeah. to be the first one to book it. I'm sure uh, many other people are feeling, I understand. I think everyone yeah. is yeah. Uh, struggling. But it's pretty okay. I uh, heard you had uh, big news though. You you blew up on Twitter. Oh, yes. I was, uh, I was at this uh, webinar where they, um, when two, two ladies were talking about um, career in academia. Uh, one of the ladies is professor here in the Netherlands, and the other lady was talking about the career in the, um, in the industry. She's also a very high, high up person in the, indus- in, the, in the industry, in the pharma company. So uh, I have already had the pleasure uh, before talking to them, and, but I had some more questions and I was posting questions and someone took a screenshot and it kind of went on Twitter and I got the amazing number of one retweet and what? three likes. One so retweet. I'm, wow. I'm, can anyone big. beat that? I don't think they could. <laughs> but yeah, it's I'm the small big, things, bro. I suppose, isn't it? 
Uh, that's what wins. she said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that's that's good. It's good to know that you're yeah. uh, <laughs> trying to make it big, and people are noticing you. Better. They better be. Yeah. yeah. How about yourself, man? Any, yeah. Anything. Good. Anything big. Good. No. Um. I. I. I don't think people know. So I was doing my masters, but I'm. It's currently on hold as I still need to do an internship and. Um, because at the moment, uh, there's so little labs willing to take on students because mm. of the social distancing and limiting people in the lab. So I'm waiting to try and finish it. So I'm back working in a in a in immunology laboratory in in the hospital here in Dublin. Um, so uh, it's it's good. I, it was funny yesterday. I was uh I was doing it um lesson microscope reading and um. Yeah. It was just like amazing. I have you ever had this like where you, it was just like amazing. Uh, <laughs> it, it was such an amazing slide. Like it was so pretty and beautiful. I was like, wow, this kind of like turns me on a little bit. Like <laughs> I know, I know what you're talking about, man. It's just so, so good. It's just so not like so pretty. I was like, wow, this is just hits, you just hits have the spot. To, yeah. So I was just like, yeah, nice. Um, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Other than other than that, my science week has been pretty quiet. I haven't been able to just uh keep them busy in my in my work. Um you trying to keep keep looking at the current news and trends in Corona. Um Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Um You should totally you should totally put that on Tinder. What turns me on <laughs> well developed well developed slides. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just just uh narrow out the the weed out the people who aren't interested in science. That way. That's it. That's who it. else can relate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, man. Uh, so, what have What have you got for me uh, from the science news? Do you wanna kick it out? Yeah. So I think um, I I don't know. Was it? Uh, uh, it was. I think it was a week ago. But it was like really big news that the the World Health Organization they published it was a, a lot like nearly over a hundred scientists. So at the moment, most people are implementing like two meters social distancing. I think in Europe it's like one point five. In America, I think it's six feet. What the World Health Organization always said was it was always only spread by droplets. It never would stay in aerosol. So it was just like it would fall very quickly. Yeah, and aerosols. I know would stay in the air, and but they they wouldn't. It wouldn't be a risk. But now it's after coming out that a lot over a hundred scientists saying that it actually there is a really strong possibility that it can actually spread via these aerosols and not just from the droplets. Um, and the ramifications of this is is really huge because it means that two meters in like that's the max that a lot of countries have been using mightn't mm. even be enough. Um to to social distance because um the aerosols you could still be inhaling them um yeah so getting, it just uh, would put in a huge uh, i don't i don't know what i don't know how you they can i don't know i think the world health organization are just going to see um and investigate and see what's going to happen in the future and maybe do recommendations but i don't know how they can sh recommend any changes because um it would have so much feasibility issues with workplaces and and stuff like that so um it'll be interesting to see if they actually do recommend changing it um does the does wearing a mask uh makes makes it better or worse or doesn't no. make any difference oh yes that it does definitely make a difference it it clear if both people wear a mask the risk of it spreading is very little 
That was actually okay. another story that was there this week. It was uh, published by the CDC, um, where two symptomatic hairstylists, they actually both had confirmed COVID-19 and they w- both wore a mask and so did their clients. They had 139. Uh, and mm. could you guess how many got the virus based on that fact? So 139 clients and there clients. were two hairstylists who, had okay. sim- who were symptomatic, but they wore a mask. I'm going to say about 60 people got infected. Two people. Two people? Yeah. So What? That's just, crazy. Yeah, yeah. Like, th- that just shows how important they are. Um, and that there's no denying that they work. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're making them now in Ireland, where I am, they're going to make them mandatory. They're mandatory on transport anyways, but they're going to make mm-hmm. it mandatory in supermarkets. And they're going to make it mandatory in um uh shopping centers and stuff like that and i think it's a really good idea because we kind of need to uh, if this thing is true with aerosols which i think it is this is going to have to happen it's just it's yeah. just the only way we're going to get it down because uh social distancing up to a point can help but if it's aerosols like they're saying um yeah, it's going to have serious serious um ramifications yeah, so- and master what we need um, right now here uh, we only wear them on the public transportation yeah. um, the college itself uh, issued a statement or was it the hospital sorry i think it was the hospital that the wearing a mask is not necessary but that was a while ago so it could be due to change yeah but wearing a mask is not necessary however if you come in from a broad country and you, the, the country that you from follows the rule of wearing the mask you should feel free to wear the mask in the hospital as well so um i haven't been wearing a mask in the hospital where i work yeah but, but i don't uh, i don't either in our lab i don't we kind of try and just keep our distance as well yeah but if this comes in i think nearly we would have to all wear a mask it does uh it does make a sense especially what? from in some places in our lab there is like it's very hard to maintain this uh this distance yeah so but I don't know. We'll, uh, I suppose we'll wait and see and follow the new legislation. I remember when I was over there, like, very few people would wear them in the supermarkets. Does that, like, change at all? or? Uh, so there was, there was a point where loads of people I saw wearing masks in the supermarket. And now, uh, now there is no these restrictions. You don't have to queue. You don't, they don't count how many people is inside. Yeah. So there is only, like... Uh, there's only sporadic people that I see wearing masks. Majority of people is just kind of uh, coming in and out. So most uh, people do assume it's just over, like it's gone. Uh, well, they act like it or they act like it's not bothering them. Yeah. I yeah. think, yeah. I don't know if they, um, if they think it's already over. Maybe they just think it's, it's a low chance to get in it now. Yeah. Uh, so what, what have you been finding? How did you find? Uh, okay, so uh, I'm gonna have a... Do you want to hear a COVID news or do you want to hear not COVID-related news? Uh, maybe non-COVID since I covered some okay. COVID. So I'm gonna give you a news that... Okay, so I'm working in genetics and uh, with, uh, gen- with genetic treatment, RNA-based treatment, but I have a huge interest in the human evolution. Oh, so yeah. I, uh, I, I love human evolution. I love reading about it. Although I don't know that much. It's like something that I enjoy. So 
Are you aware that we are now trying to figure out exactly when first people uh, uh, showed up in North America? And this, this new founding is based on the fossilized human poo. <laughs> so <laughs> so this nice. is, uh, I thought that was pretty cool. What, so what was it? Uh, what were they able to find, like in fos the fossilized poo? <laughs> so they found. Um, so basically, How by did the they know it was poo. <laughs> That's another. <laughs> they did DNA uh, studies. Okay. So, but uh, by, by the, the the current idea is that people showed up in North America thirteen thousand uh, years ago. They were referred as Clovis culture. So that was 13,000 years ago, Clovis, Clovis people appeared in North America. But now they found this poo, that's fossilized poo, and, uh, and they, did some, uh, d they, they investigated DNA markers on it. And they did some, so that's how they confirmed that this could be a human, human fossilized poo. And then they did carbon, uh, uh, carbon uh, dating on it, and it traced back to 14,000 years ago. So, so that's... Less. Well, so it's older. So oh, it's, it's older. the they they call it uh, they call it pre Clovis culture. But then people were coming up saying like, well, it's pretty easy to to get uh, contamination. Like, how is there any other markers? Is there any other way you can prove it that like it is actually it is actually belongs to these people from that time rather than just getting contaminated or something like that yeah. and they found uh, they started investigating um uh, uh, lipid biomarkers so the they are they apparently are way more way harder to contaminate than dna yeah and in the 13 out of 21 fossilized feces contained lipids that strongly suggest that they were created by humans so this is this is what they based a um uh, the assumption from and they also found evidence of dogs domestication in the, with that people so they uh, they are also now linking it that this pre pre uh, Clovis people uh, were like working in close uh, collaboration not working but like they were just living close with domesticated dogs and uh, yeah it just puts a little bit it puts another spin on like the human migration and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and stuff. So they like reckon that, so. that there actually was something uh, living in North America before these these uh, yeah before this Clovis people yeah. But it is it it's not like a, a archaic human. They uh, they reckon it's the it's the hum Homo sapiens people. So the so uh, so people like you and me. It's just this kind of uh, uh, when you're trying to de deduce the dates of when did they migrated out of Africa. Uh, which routes did they took? How did they mm. uh, breed with other humanoids? Like it's all kind of a uh, speculative, I'd say, and yeah. you, you, you know, it, it's very hard to to figure out. But I thought that was interesting, and that puts yet another spin on like human migration and how do we colonize the earth and, yeah. and stuff like that. And maybe yeah. that did we mix? How much of other humanoid DNA did we mix with? Right? Oh, uh, there is. I think it's like. On av oh, I don't want to say something silly, but I think it's like two percent Neanderthal DNA in Homo sapiens. Yeah, because yeah, heard that. If you like, if you are like a Neanderthal, right, like a guy, yeah, and you just and you just look at your side piece, and she has like a massive eyebrows, like <laughs> looking like you know not pretty, and then you see this Homo sapiens <laughs> lady strolling along, like you know, like. <laughs> 
you going at it, like, you know? You <laughs> like, going mm, at it, yeah. like, uh, yeah, screw them. <laughs> that might have been just a weird for them, though, I'm sure. Uh, like, why does she have, like, a flat face? Or No, do, why doesn't she have a flat face? Because that's what they are. Didn't have flat faces, the, the Neanderthals. Yeah, we look li- way better than Neanderthals. <laughs> and, I, and I don't blame them, like... Uh, this is this is how they died off because the lads were just like sorry sorry they are way better <laughs> well it's That's... still debatable i don't know maybe they didn't all die off i do see some <laughs> neanderthal <laughs> looking people <laughs> walking around um yeah all right nice um, yeah i thought that was cool um and then the other headlines i seen was i think everyone seen this uh and it was very recent about uh, and it's very unprecedented that the Trump administration, they decided that the its premier health agency in the US, the CDC, is no mm-hmm. longer going to receive data on hospital admissions and death rate. Yeah. But will instead oh, it's going to yeah. be sent to a, a federally contracted health data company. Uh, going... And then, yeah, it, it just raises the question, like, why is their premier health agency not going to be used to correlate data to track information? So yeah, it's very weird. Um, it was, yeah, it was this company that it's ca- it's called Teletracking. It's a health mm-hmm. data company, and it was awarded. It was non-competitive federal contract. Um, so oh. yeah, it's just like obviously they're trying. It seems like they're trying to. Um, so it, hold on, are the are the scientists? So the scientists are not getting the data. The data is going first to bureaucrats. Is no, uh, basically, no, it's from the hospitals. So basically, so it's from the hospitals. Uh, the, at the end of each day, I presume they look at the amount of deaths by COVID, the amount of mm-hmm. tests positive. And then before this, they were meant to publish it, submit the data to the CDC, who would publish it every day for each state and stuff like that. Whereas right, na- so- now it's going to be uh, not to get into the CDC. It's going to this private health co- health data company. And it would ris- raise questions like the only reason I would think of why they want to do this is because they want to try and spin it. The red yeah, dates play- that, are le- that they have less death rates or less yeah. cases. I'm thinking the same. They're trying to, pl- they're trying to play with the data. Yeah. They're trying to... Because, you know, if you know how to play with the data, you can, you can do a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, uh, it's, it's just crazy to me that they would do this uh, and even looking at the de- like they've uh, in america at the moment today uh on the 18th of july what we're recording this it had the highest number um it's the highest case number they've ever had again it's at a new record and yet their debt rate is still lower than it was when it was like it was like a peak in new york so mm-hmm. you were like how is it that there are more cases than it had before when it was like peaking in new york but yet their debt rate is less than that. Isn't that not weird? Uh, yes. Well, what I can say on top of that is I heard I heard two things. So why the debt rate is so low? But I don't know if this is legit. The first thing I heard is that for some reason, uh, when there was a suspect death of COVID, they were putting it on their records as a pneumonia-related death. Oh, yes, uh, I heard death. this as well. So, so, uh, but I don't know how true it is that. So uh, this is just something that I heard. And the other thing that I heard somewhere, or maybe just read, I don't remember, is that 
this is a new form of the virus that has mutated that uh, the infection infection level stayed the same or is even higher but it's not as deadly but i don't i just i think i heard that somewhere but there's no way i can trace it back and read it again so these are the two things mm, that I yeah. heard why why the death rate could be so but, low. But it could be could be even bullshit. I, I who say, heard like um, if it was actually like a lot of the time they're just recording it as pneumonia. And if you looked at the mm-hmm. total deaths from pneumonia at this time of year, you would see a huge increase in pneumonia related deaths. So even yeah. if it wasn't COVID, you'd be like, what? Well, there's some kind of outbreak that's causing pneumonia deaths. Why are they not looking mm. into this? So, uh, yeah, they're just playing with the figures, definitely, to make it seem like it's not as badly affected and stuff like that. I don't yeah. know what's going on there, man. Um, and final, uh, final news, um, some good news, I suppose, to try and end this mm-hmm. headlines. Um, that the, the, did you hear they had the, uh, an mRNA vaccine um, developed and actually showed that it did produce a robust response in um, most patients. So there is some optimism um to be with this kind of new kind of vaccine um they've never actually produced a vaccine like this i think uh maybe someone can correct me if that's tr- not right um but it, yeah it showed it showed that it was only phase one but it did increase the antibody teeters significantly so okay um, i definitely want to go through this again in a separate podcast like we want to talk about vaccines um right i i don't want to be a bit of a downer but uh i see as was we have to be skeptical this is in in the title as it is (laughs) in the title um i seen that they might have only released prelim data on eight participants so it almost was selective um yeah so eight is very small yeah so it's still a long way to go before we can concretely say if this would be uh, uh an effective vaccine but hopefully, fingers crossed, we can we yeah. will be effective. So yeah. Um, mm. anything else you want to add for? We well, if we are on story? the on the vaccine thing, I came across a COVID nineteen vaccine frontrunner to enter final stage as positive results get published, and this is a a vaccine from Mo- Moderna. Oh yeah, this I think this uh, is the same one I'm on about. Is that what? Is it the RNA? I thought it was an RNA based. Yeah. Yes. It is RNA-based vaccine, yeah. So I think uh, we're talking about yeah, the same yeah, yeah. thing. So it's, yeah, so um, basically... But the the one that I'm reading, it's uh, according to the new paper, 45 participants were split into three groups of 15 each uh, to test doses of 25, 100, and 250 micrograms. Yeah, uh, yeah and it's an RNA-based vaccine. So this is something new. Mm. And uh, basically, it saves, uh, you don't have to produce in the lab the viral protein. You just inject someone with the RNA and RNA uh, get turned into this, into this protein. So your immune system can develop antibodies. And, uh, and, it's good, and it's reassuring to know that the protein on its own is not, uh, doesn't carry a risk of developing any uh, mm. COVID-like uh, symptoms. Yeah. So you can't really get sick just because of yeah, the protein yeah. on its but own. But it still seems, um, yeah, I'm still skeptical because, uh, yeah, if it was so easy, why have they never developed this before, an RNA vi- vaccine? It's usually always an attenuated uh, virus. Maybe, but, you know, when, when you have a pandemic, uh, people just throw money at you. You have way more freedom. You, there's way more brain power to 
brainstorm yeah, all exactly, the ideas yeah. and you and you know that concern about how much money you're gonna spend on it because you know money is there yeah, for this yeah. that's true okay anything else you want to add just uh so maybe just a headline without getting into it a damaged human lungs can be repaired by attaching them to pigs experiment show so basically you hook up a damaged human lungs into a hum into a so, pig into a pig you inject yeah, you in through, you like through the put them into human pigs so the the lungs are not inside the pig but like they are connected to the vascular system i think to the to the pig uh, circulatory system and the blood is being pumped uh, from the pig through the lungs and that improves the recovery of the lung basically that's what the that's what the little wow. news uh, okay. i read yeah <laughs> So now they're thinking about doing the same thing, but rather than rather using cross species, they they try to see if you if they hook up a human, if the if the human can do the same thing as the pig did. It seems very uh, uh, so yeah. Well, if it works, th I'm not gonna. If it uh, works, it works. Dismiss it, yeah. But I, I just feel yeah. I yeah, I, I told just feel like uh, a lot of steps to getting lungs working again. Yeah, definitely. And I said it to my girlfriend, and she goes. But that's cruel. And I was like, okay, so I completely didn't think about how Pig feels about this. I was just like, this is great <laughs> news. Let's save humans. And she's like, oh, but this is cruel. And I was like, oh, maybe. I don't know. Okay. That's a, that's a, maybe not get into that topic. Like, he'll yeah, open a big can of worms. Not. We don't need that on our first yeah. episode. <laughs> no. So um, the main story that I want to discuss today is um, all about hydroxy chloroquine um or as trump says hydroxy Clo chloroquine, chloroquine. <laughs> yeah um so basically uh the fourth of Ju on the fourth of july so it was last week the world health organization they decided to end the trial that were investigating hydroxychloroquine finally ending this long drawn-out saga that mm. happened with the drug um mm. and how it was going to be the drug that saved us all from now, corona. Now, for clarification, this is not the time where it stopped the clinical trials on hydrochloroquine due to do this uh, unfortunate papers. No, I am no. going to go into that as well. Okay. Um, uh, no, this is actually, for real, it's done this time. It's not okay. going to be come back in. Okay. Um, uh, so basically, what this trial was, it was called the Solidarity Trial. And it was an it's an interesting project, multina multinational trial that the World Health Organization has organized and is trying to compare like four untested treatments for hospitalized patients with severe COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to basically find four main questions with these drugs. So they want to see, do any of the drugs reduce mortality? Do any mm -hmm. of them reduce the time a patient is hospitalized? Do the treatments affect the need for people with COVID-induced pneumonia to be ventilated or maintained in ICU? Uh, or could it be used to minimize the illness in healthcare staff and a people at high risk of developing severe illness? So they really want to look at these four questions um, and basically look and see, could they find these any drugs that work? So, so I presume um, the, the mortality is the most interesting, the most important one? Um, well, they, they all are important questions. Uh, even if you can get one, it'd be super uh, useful. I think, I think they all are equally important. Like, I think when they get into ICU, it's just the fact there's so many of them, once they get to ICU, they don't really recover. So if you could help improve that, it would be yeah. great. Yeah. Or reduce the symptoms when it does get so severe and have that very bad, um, 
Sorry to call him Storm, as they say. So the, basically, they've ended it anyways only for mortality and hospitalization. They're still not sure what the effect is on less severe patients or possibly in prophylaxis. Um, although, at least for the latter, for prophylaxis, it's not really sure to have much effect. Um, mm-hmm. And But it doesn't show solid evidence of increased uh, mortality, but it did show safety signals that were raised in later on trials. So anyway, so the the uh, the background really was um it was it was an it's an anti-malarial drug as you know you yeah. kind of talked about it um what was it what what else have you did you find when you wrote your so it's an anti it's initially anti-malarian drug but they also use it for uh, autoimmune diseases uh I think uh, um SLE yeah and rheumatoid arthritis oh, yeah, yeah. I think. There, it had. I think the 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 drugs from the Queenion families have been used in um, in the viral infections as well, yeah. and some other type of viral infection. But I think the most emphasis was kind of put on that. This is primarily used now to treat autoimmune diseases. So they, I think, yeah. they have a better drugs to tackle malaria now. So they kind of directing the hydro- the hydrochloroquine stuff into to the that. into autoimmunity. Yeah. yeah. So, like, initially, I think it became super well-known and uh, mainstream, hydroxychloroquine, when Trump touted it as a game-changer, as he called a game-changer. But it was never proven when he said this. Um, But the the crazy thing was the U.S. bought millions of doses for the drug, Uh and this meant there was actually shortages ensued for people who actually needed the drug yeah like for... with lupus or rheumatoid arthritis um so when i looked to see what was the first paper how did trump even hear about it? where did it all come from right so right. it was actually an initial study and it discussed hydroxychloroquine as a possible cure treatment from france mm-hmm. and uh it hadn't even been published uh this this paper before a lawyer who claimed to be from stanford university he actually wasn't <laughs> he went on Fox News and said that it was a hundred percent cure rate from coronavirus. So you're like, oh, this must be something. Uh, so this study that he based it off, well, okay. So the clinical <laughs> trial, first thing, it wasn't double blinded or randomized. So people, just in case you don't know, double blinded is uh, you wanted to make sure the patient doesn't know they're getting the drug, or the the doctor doesn't know who the drug yeah. is. So. Either one or both knew what if they were getting the drug, uh, and you want to randomize it. So basically, uh, you want to capture as much of a natural environment. Yeah, as exactly. You want to have it as student. random as possible. If there's any kind of co-founding or anything that's maybe causing the results to seem positive, it's balanced out in both groups. Because if you don't randomize properly, it's always going to uh, bias the results. Uh, and another, this is. I thought this is crazy. Like, this is an, a study that did this. Um, patients and controls, they came from separate populations. Uh, in that, like, the patients came from Marseille. Okay. And the controls came from other populations in France. So they were completely, they weren't in the same area. They were it's, completely, they just got the controls from other hospitals. Not the best uh, And they controls. got the patients from one group. So they only looked at the patients in their hospital they were treatment. Mm. As well as this, the treatment group was significantly older. Okay. Uh, and they also treated some of the patient group with an antibiotic, which was not randomized for as well. So it was just a terrible science all over. 
So they actually excluded patients that went to ICU or died in the final analysis. And the reason was this, because their outcome, their outcome they were measuring was to take nasal swab and to see the days it would take from them to go from positive to negative. Mm-hmm. Very, like, doesn't mean really a lot, does it? I, I uh, don't think so. If you want to study incubation time. Uh, yeah. So it appeared it was cleared faster in the treatment group uh, than the control group, even mm. with all this other stuff. But it did not mention that how 15% versus 0% of the control group had poor clinical outcomes, um, which was actually a better measure outcome um, than just looking mm-hmm. from days for it to go from positive to negative. So since this paper was out, it's been classed as meaningless. <laughs> and even the journal, the published it doesn't believe it meets their standards. So I don't know. I'm not sure if it's been removed from their website. Uh, so yeah, it's just it was what, just was it a high impact? Me. No, it wasn't no, that high okay. impact. Okay. So this yeah. really crappy paper came out that didn't have any good science or design behind it. Um. So why did it get picked up and highlighted so much more than others? Uh. Well. There was, there had been in promising in vitro studies done with hydrochloroquine in China and South Korea. Yeah. Uh, and this is why the WHO decided to use it for the large scale uh, international clinical trial. But it was, it was the hype men, these hype men that really pushed and promoted the drug. And this is what the co-author of the paper was able to do. And he promoted it on Facebook and he was able to get a quarter of a million views. And then he goes like, okay, what else can I do to try and get this, to promote this? So he recruited this lawyer, uh, Regano is his surname. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who appeared on Fox News. And then he, in turn, he was able to write a Google document uh, with a Silicon Valley lawyer uh, that appeared like a scientific paper. Um, and this document was shared on Twitter and just went, <laughs> no pun in- intended, but it went viral. This um, is crazy. And it seemed because it was super looks scientific and it was super promising, like a hundred percent. It was even tweeted by Elon Musk and shared among his followers. He tweeted the actual document out to everyone, uh, and it gave the drug the heights of the popularity during the pandemic. So, uh, like that's why it just went went off. Like uh, Trump seen the interview on Fox News, and then he obviously. Um, he promoted it and yeah once he talked about it he used this as a as a way of like fighting back against the virus but let me ask you let me ask you a question so among all of this misconception about giving this false hype to a hydrochloroquine and what's not like is there any legitimate legitimacy to hydrochloroquine being effective in the uh in COVID-19 infections I think when the WHO discontinued it it doesn't look good at all okay. because okay. Uh, they did this properly large-scale trial randomized and they did it right. And if they've just continued it, then I don't think it could be used. Okay. It was actually reported that Trump did have financial interest in a company that did make a brand name version of hydrochloroquine. <laughs> uh, that still is not confirmed, but <laughs> I would nearly be not surprised. That well, he's a businessman to start Yeah, with. exactly. So what, and it would just be like, why would he want to promote this so much? Yeah, and it was hard to talk about it or refute it because the counterpoint was an overly competent propagandist uh, <laughs> who was like never going to say there was anything wrong with it. Yeah, yeah. So, 
the first block or the first issue came up when uh, a significant study within the Lancet was published, which had a look at real world settings which span many hospitals. And not only did the drug show little benefit, but it actually showed that people who took the drug uh, were at a higher risk of death and heart problems. And uh, like crazy uh, to think that they were actually harming more people. The the heart arrhythmia is the side effect of hydrochloroquine. Yeah, it yeah, must be. Yeah. Oh yeah. So because of this, the World Health Organization Director General said there would be a temporary pause on this arm mm-hmm. in the trial of the solidarity trial. So you would think at this stage, okay, it's done. We're never going to hear from hydroxychloroquine right, again. Right. <laughs> uh, but then on the third of June, the WHO decided it would resume interest in the trial. Um. So this was interesting. I was like, so why was it reinstated? Yeah. Uh, I when think it was th- I think one. it's also just to interrupt you. I think this is also why people are like super confused and not trust WHO or CDC. It's because one day they say something and then next week they say something else and this kind of trend keeps happening. And yeah. I, I can see how people be like, Well, you don't know what you're talking, so I'm just gonna follow my God or I'm just gonna listen to celebrities. But yeah, okay, keep going. Yeah um yeah you're it's so too so true like uh in this critical what a critical uh health organization needs to be clear about what they're doing Mm. so the who decided to reinstate the trial on the 3rd of june right um and this was because although it had been claimed that there was a higher cause of death Mm -hmm. um in the previous Lancet paper, mm-hmm. the WHO did not find that there was a, actually there was a significantly increased risk of death, and they said there was no reason to modify the trial protocol. So, if you look behind this paper in the Lancet, mm-hmm. um, it was shown that it was actually called, carried out by a company called Surgosphere, right, right, and it's a healthcare analytics company. Uh, so they what they did was they analyzed data from nearly ninety six thousand patients mm-hmm. that were admitted to over nearly 700 hospitals in a database of 1,200 hospitals. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but soon after, the Guardian had a, looked into the paper and they seen that there were some really glaring errors. Uh, and one in particular was in, uh, it was in Australia, where they had recorded that there was 600 Australian COVID-19 patients and 17 Australian deaths as the 21st of April. Mm-hmm. But if the, the data from John Hopkins University showed that there only had been 67 deaths from COVID-19 recorded in Australia by the 21st of April. Um, coincidentally, that's my birthday, uh, <laughs> just in case anyone's wondering. Um, so it didn't rise to 73 until the 23rd of April. So it led to many asking, why did, where did this data come from? Mm-hmm. Why did they see an increase? deaths yeah uh, way before it was officially recorded but they said that it had been added by accident uh, and this actually was meant to be for asia but when the guardian actually looked asked many epidemiologists in australia what what about what the, the study yeah. and the company they said they never had heard of it and they were saying if they were managed to get this wrong how well much else were they willing to get wrong um, it was interesting, the, the Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine, uh, it was only when the Guardian approached them that they found flaws in the, in the, in the paper. They never really... So it, it escaped only, them. They, 
during the peer review this this yeah this, yeah this it really was on weird it was very unusual like why did they not see these errors or look into the errors before mm. uh this being uh queried by the guardian um so uh the sur- the surgosphere the guardian looked into and they're seeing that the company itself has suspiciously very few employees yeah very small online presence and the firm's chief executive his name was sapan desai mm-hmm. and he's had very questionable stuff raised about him he's a doctor but he's been named in three malpractice suits yes i remember even reading though that. they said they've been unfounded mm. and since this investigation his wikipedia page has been deleted <laughs> so nothing can be found on the guy yeah um so it's very all unusual behavior uh, and actually now, since then, the paper has been retracted from the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet website. So um, after the side found, looked into this and found there was some weird, uh, unusual discrepancies, though who reinstated it? But then eventually, now, finally, the whole saga has come to end. They've decided to uh, end the study of that arm. In the solidarity trial, they reckon it's not it's not going to be any more effective. There's no point continuing mm-hmm. it, and yeah, so uh, it brings to an end this long dragged out saga <laughs> that uh, uh, was super unnecessary. But this is the problem, I think, very much uh, at the moment with uh, drugs and drugs that can be potentially used. They're all just being released in press releases. It's not true actual journals that people are reading. It's just like well, people are just taking snapshots, putting in the press, and the press are just seizing on it. Gets everywhere because everyone wants a treatment for it. Yeah, it was the market for it, and so basically, this whole thing is it. It's based on two. Well, yeah. I don't want to say fraudulent, but poorly designed studies. The first one that yeah. hyped it up. And then the second one that kind of highlighted non-existing yeah. uh, side yeah. effects, and yeah. Yeah. and basically WHO was just trying to 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 make to make sense out of everything. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's uh, it's it's just like, but like this, and I don't think this is going to be the last time this ever happens. But it like for now, when there's so much publicity looking for new drugs, um, the it's just it's just so hard to find. Like it, it's just so hard that people can keep grounded and look at the actual results, whereas they're just picking and choosing what they mm. want to find. And perhaps, so, uh, perhaps they did find some kind of promising results when they uh, did the test in the cell culture. Yeah. But yeah, they, that's what the, that's what they've said that the animal studies was actually very promising, but but there it is, doesn't always translate. There so. is a huge difference between moving on from uh from the test from the results that you get in the, in the cell culture to translating it into yeah. into even animal and 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 human models. It's a yeah. it's a long way. So it's very hard to label a drug effective or we found the cure just because you get some preliminary data uh from cell cultures or something like that. Yeah. Um, so next time I want to try and go into this other drug that's been investigated, remdesivir. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the one that Anthony Fauci has been on about. Mm-hmm. Um, and want to see, is it all hype or is it all hope? I have some interesting discussion topics. So I hope you join us next time to hear about this. Okay. Um, so, Tom, what 
Right. What have you been finding from the Spanish... Uh... Inquisition. No, Sa- <laughs> Spanish zero prevalence uh, study. Yes, yes. So I'm, I'm very interested to hear. Uh, it was interesting. So I follow a lot of comedians. And there is a big trend uh, now when they use the term herd immunity. And I, I'm not really sure that they know what it is or how it works. So, name and shame the comedians, please. Uh, the fighter and the kid, Brendan Schaub <laughs> and Brian Callen, obsessively speaking about herd immunity. So just in the middle uh, of that, the Spanish paper comes out uh, and uh, the title is The Prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 in Spain, a nationwide population-based seroepidemiological study. And there is a lot of bodies involved with that study. We have a National Center of Epidemiology, Consortium of Biological Research Epidemiology, and as far as the Ministry of Health, Madrid, Spain. So you have uh, private kind of uh, colleges involved, hospitals, and the government itself. So it looks really legit. And uh, maybe before I get into the nitty-gritty of what this paper shows and uh, what kind of it predicts for future, for anyone who doesn't know what zero prevalence is, it can be described as a number of persons in a population who test positive for a specific disease based on serology specimens, which means like if you develop the antibodies. There's another two terms that are being used in this paper, which is specificity and sensitivity. And I think lay people might have a different understanding of what specificity and sensitivity is. So just to clarify it for you guys, specificity is the ability of test to correctly classify an individual as a disease-free. And the sensitivity is the ability of the test to correctly classify an individual as disease positive. So these are this kind of a terminology. And so basically, just to, in case, just to put it even more, expand like I'm five. Specificity is if uh, if you don't have the disease that you come up negative. And yes. sensitivity is if you have the disease that you come up positive. Yeah, so That's why you want, you want yeah. to ideally have. 100% on both, but obviously yeah, that's not possible. There's always a trade-off, right? And yeah. uh, people who work in the diagnostic labs, they, they, I'm sure they know way more about how to, uh, how to work with the, the specificity and sensitivity. So let's get into it. Let's get into the paper. So impressing number. So the, the design of this paper was uh, like, I was amazed because I think you would nearly need a degree in business and administ- <laughs> administra- administrative sciences to kind of understand how it, everything went on. But uh, basically, it's a, okay, it's a nationwide population-based uh, court. And uh, the households were selected based uh, on the stratified two-stage sampling. So first, they stratified population into the provinces of Spain. So there's 50 provinces. And then within these provinces, they stratified even further to kind of... Uh, to get a better understanding how populations are redistributed within Spain mm. and within the provinces. So when they're going to sample it, they're going to have a, a reliable number of people. So they're not going to oversample Madrid and then not take any samples from some rural people. Uh, so but, like, but this is good because you get a more yeah. clear image of what's going on. So they did a good job at really yeah, the, the like design... selecting their there's the population that they wanted to do. For what I could understand, the design was really good. So they started off with 102,562 individuals. But at the end, only 66,805 agreed to participate. 
So 55% participated because uh, the other 45% didn't participate for, for various reasons, which is, uh, if you're interested, just dive into the paper. There's, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on we it. We will link that in uh, the description, hopefully, uh, wherever you get yeah. your podcast. So uh, on a, another important thing about how this study was designed is that this is only a part one of a three-part study. So they do these measurements in three waves. And this is the oh. f this is the first wave of results that's coming out, and it's uh, and this the uh, the results that we see in this paper are are from the April twenty seventh to May eleventh. So we have two more uh, studies that could uh, that could be coming out from uh, from this large uh, investigation. Participants were picked based on the questionnaire that included history of symptoms compatible with COVID. So you get your your regular kind of uh, respiratory symptoms. But they also include the uh, no smell and no taste uh, symptoms yeah. of COVID, which are uh, uh, which we know are present now. So that kind of on how the uh, how the study design was carried out and how they selected the participants. And now, how did they actually test it for the antibodies? So uh, they used two different tests. So they they used this uh, a rapid uh, rapid. A COVID-19 IgG IgM rapid test cassette, which is basically, oh, yeah. which is basically a pregnancy test for someone who, who doesn't know. You, you take a blood sample, you put it on this cassette, and it gives you a, a positive result in the form of, uh, of a color, like, like on the pregnancy test. And this test is designed to differentiate between IgG and IgM. These are uh, two forms of antibodies that our body produces among... Uh, there's also IgA and IgE and IgD. You are the immune. Yeah. yeah. So I got them. But this one detects IgG and IgM, which are just kind a, of... I think just a big... Uh, IgM usually is like recent infection and then IgG is more long-term. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Infection. I was just... I was going to mention that as well. But anyway, um, and the other test, it's the chemiluminescent-based assay where they measure only IgG. So you can hear it from this point onward that I'll be talking only about IgG because they actually drop in IgM. So IgM is out of the picture in this. They didn't uh, bother with it. So basically they were getting not so uh, clear code results with IgM. So yeah. I, think, I think it was a decision made in the, like, uh, in the, in the room where they were like, uh, let's just drop IgM. We have a clear mm. code data, uh, much more better to handle and interpret it with IgM with IgG and IgM is just something we're going to cut out of the picture, but we will mention it that we just, it was not feasible for us to get accurate yeah. measurements of IgM. So this is what they do. And um, I'm really interested though. So what was the, how accurate was the, the cassette one? Because I know back, uh, back before a while ago when they were the FDA, they had approved, they actually had an emergency approval. So anyone could have developed uh yeah, an antibody test. So, so there were so many of these cassette, um, so actually cassette they, type they uh, tests available. So it's it interesting. They highlighted this issue here. So the the cassette it measures the spike S protein, and the manufacturer says that sensitivity is ninety seven point two percent for IgG and eighty seven point nine percent for IgM, and specificity is hundred percent for both for IgG and IgM. But they did their own verification study. Uh, this group and they found out that sensitivity uh, for IgG is 82% and uh, for IgM is 69.6%. But the specificity. So if you were. Yeah, go on, sorry. And the specificity was 100% for IgG and 99% oh, for IgM. Wow. 
So, so if you didn't have it, you were a hundred percent would come up negative. Yeah. Eighty. If you were positive, eighty-seven percent of people that were positive had a positive test. Uh. Uh. Basically, yeah. So that's very impressive, actually. Um. I didn't think they'd be that good. Yeah, but they later on say that due to the lower sensitivity and specificity of IgM, its shorter duration and the heterogeneity of results observed in initial IgM readings, results for the point of care test reported here are based only on the IgG. Yeah, so So they dropped the IgM. They they dropped the IgG completely. IgM. Sorry, they dropped the IgM completely. And then the second test, the chemiluminescent immunoassay, for detection of IgG, well, it's it's only designed to pick up IgG, so the IgM is out of uh, out of the picture. Let's get into the the nitty gritty of how the zero prevalence was looking. So, uh, what they say is that uh, from the all the people they tested, the proportion of testing was lower in individuals aged 25 to 29 and older than 65 years, and in middle-aged men compared with middle-aged women. So basically men, uh, young adults and elderly were not as keen uh, to get tested, as well as people coming in from low-income uh, households. They were not also very willing to get tested. And the, the big thing they found out that uh, in the period that they measured the zero prevalence between the 27th of April and 11th of May, the zero prevalence in Spain was 5% by the cassette testing, and 4.6% by immunoassay, which is like... Pretty good. Well, let's think about this. If from the perspective of herd immunity, I was looking this up. If if we're talking about disease like measles, which is like highly infectious, you have to have a herd immunity within their levels of 93 to 95% to to reach the the herd immunity. Uh, I also found out a paper from, I think it was Nottingham, yes, a mathematical model reveals the influence of population heterogeneity on herd immunity to SARS-CoV-2. So this is a combined pe- paper coming from Nottingham University and Stockholm University. And they discovered that within the population, there should be between 40 to 60% zero prevalence in or- before we can even start mentioning herd immunity. So yeah. for the time of how long the COVID has been around, how many people have been infected, I think the zero prevalence, zero prevalence seems really low. Of course, in places like Madrid, where there is like a lot of people living and there was like one of the, the hot zones of COVID, uh, yeah. there was, there was the on, there was, uh, Madrid was the only place when the zero prevalence was greater than 10%. For and po- what, was the va- what was the figure? I think it was uh, between 11 to 12%. Wow. And then the, uh, outside Madrid, the next highest one was Barcelona with 5%. Wow. So, like, the people are getting infected, but, like, the zero prevalence within the population, it's still, like, it's still pretty low. And it's crazy to think, though, because, like, this nearly broke the Spanish. Like, they, Spain was one of the worst affected countries and nearly broke yeah, their health system. It was... Uh, and yet, uh, what was it? Only, what, 5% yeah. of them people got it. Yeah, so on average, yeah. And it just shows that it's it's not this is not feasible to just let everyone get it because so many people will die it's very weird and they also i I like that they also stratified uh the differences between age groups so infants had extremely low zero prevalence and infants are 
like uh, uh, babies uh, less than 12 months old, it was like 1.1%. They discovered that this, the, the seroprevalence within the population kind of plateau at age 45 at, at around 6%. This is what they discovered. Uh, seroprevalence is similar for men and women. Uh, I don't know if the fact that men are getting more in, more infected with COVID nineteen sh- would would that means that men should have a higher zero prevalence? But well, isn't it? It's more that the more men are dying from it. It doesn't mean I think more okay. men uh, are actually getting in- infected with it. Yeah, I think that's something different. Um, um, the immunoassay but- showed that zero zero prevalence is the lowest in the oldest group, which is more than eighty five years old, uh, compared with the other adults. Did they mention at all how uh, maybe antibody studies aren't the best way of measuring immunity at all in the paper? Uh, n- not that I came true they they do say that the uh, the zero prevalence study is way better than just looking at the uh, infected people versus not infected people, that this can give a little bit better understanding of how COVID-19 can spread based on the, on the development of antibodies. They, uh, they, they, they don't really criticize paper from that perspective. I'm pretty, uh, pretty positive. Uh, they were pretty positive that this is the good way to go. Uh, yeah. they, did, they did mention that... Um, the IgM, which was highlighted by them, so you have to give it to them that they were like, okay, IgM doesn't work for us. We're not, we're not showing yeah. the IgM results. What, what was interesting is that they also used the RT-PCR as a gold standard test. So if you are positive by uh, PCR, uh, that means you definitely are infected. And then the, they, did, uh, they also did the uh, immunoassay test on these positive people. And uh, what was observed is that if you get your PCR test day on day zero and you were tested within the 14 days of that PCR test, your zero prevalence was low compared if you have, if you, uh, if you have, if you have taken p- the PCR and after yeah. the 14 days, you got your, uh, you got your, you, you got your antibodies measured. And I was thinking about this and I actually wanted to ask you, because as you mentioned before, the IgM is the first antibody that appears, right? And, yeah. the, and the IgG, I'm just, I'm looking at some graphs that I managed to find. And IgG really, really spikes up after the day 14, based on what I have seen. So do you think that because they excluded IgM, this zero prevalence could be affected in, in, in any way? Uh, especially in the, in the initial days, in the first 14 days bracket. They had, like, let me tell they had, like, really low results. So for the, within the 14 days, they detected 65% zero prevalence uh with the point of care test uh no 65 percent with the immunoassay and 45.6 percent with point of care uh test and that was within the 14 days and when they tested after the 14 days it was a, there was the spike to 88.6 to 90.1 percent so do you think that because they excluded igm that's what lowered down the yeah it could days. be it could be literally yeah it just didn't it can't it's just too early to detect yeah. but like if they don't have an accurate enough test there's no point using it as to measure the pres- prevalence because yeah well that's it true. doesn't tell you anything it is it is reported it is, everything is reported based on the igg and yeah. um so yeah so i can tell that this study was like design like they put a lot of effort into designing it and stratifying and making sure 
that they sample that they do the sampling in the right way not like the people from the first french hydrochloroquine study that you mentioned and here like they really try their best this is the first uh, this is the first wave and so there's two more to two two, two more to follow it, it has to be said that the serum prevalence is pretty low definitely too low uh, to talk about herd, herd immunity or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is just not happening. So don't believe that like, oh, if I have antibodies, I, I, should, I should be fine because, you know, that's, that's, we just don't know yet. We don't know um, if it, it does actually keep you yeah. uh, immunity. And they don't know exactly how long. It's still not, mm. still very much uh, variable. Like they reckon two or three months, six months, yeah. a year. So that's and, still something we need to figure out. And um, they... Yeah, keep going. Yeah, so, yeah, I just wanted to say, like, I think countries like, well, the main country that tried to do this was Sweden. Mm. And they wanted to try and push herd immunity because they wanted everyone to get it because they wanted to, uh, that way they wouldn't have a second wave. So that way it would minimize it. And um, a lot of people were like, even when Sweden was having way higher infection rates than everyone else, higher new cases. I still was like, well, I suppose this is what they want. They want to kind of get everyone to get infected, which is what their plan was. But now seeing this, it just shows that it's pointless. It's not really feasible to let everyone get it because it's so low of a, it's such a low positivity rate that it's, it's, it doesn't, you don't develop antibodies. Very few people all like very few people. It's not very prevalent to have the antibodies in the population. And it's just to pursue something like this is just not really feasible, especially no. when it causes such a high level of hospitalization. Um, it just wasn't really uh, feasible. Uh, yeah. And I think they had done a study and they only had seen 10%. Now, this was like a few a month or two ago, so it could have changed by then. Um, but one thing they were saying was maybe that antibody, it, antibody testing isn't the right way to do it, that maybe COVID uh, is, do, is, uh, is be, to measure if you've been have immunity is through other methods maybe like uh, innate immune cells like macrophages mm. or st- uh, maybe adaptive like t-cells and stuff maybe we need to look at other ways than just antibodies but right again the feasibility of doing testing like that is super difficult it's not as easy an antibody test so um, it's still something that we will kind of keep an eye on and see uh, see how it's maybe- gonna progress yeah, if uh, if any other countries maybe want to tra- test other ways of uh, looking at pre- uh, immunity within the population. Um, um, but yeah, it was, it was just an interesting this thing that uh, this whole thing with herd immunity, it's just, it really can't help. It, it, we only can ever really achieve that with, when a vaccine does happen and we do manage to get a certain amount of level of antibody prevalence in the population. But until that it happens, we just, I don't think, the only really way of combating this is is to try and prevent it from spreading. It's not to let everyone get it. And just to kind of tie it into what you what you just said, they actually make this remark here in the paper as well. I read uh, this is what they say: Our study only detected IgG antibodies, but the extent of the un- by the extent of the immunity they provide is unknown at the moment. So they do they 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 do understand the fact that just because you do have antibodies, like it hasn't been measure like to what extent you're being protective by it it's just you have an infection and five and 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 then you develop antibodies and that's what they say and and uh, and they they continue saying 
However, cellular immunity, which was not evaluated here, might also play a role in protecting yeah. against SARS-CoV-2 reinfections. So I think to get a big picture, you have to look at both uh, arms yeah. of the immune system and yeah. see what's going on. I, was I don't think that's ever been done, though. So I don't know how how that could even be, because it's so much work uh, uh, to it even is, look at that. But I think this paper show like Spain, uh, I think, has a population of 50 million people. You know, and they managed to combine all of these different institutes working together to get this study out. So I think like now is the time like the scientists have the motivation and initiative to like kind of go out there and do this like huge studies, do this uh, massive collaboration. Like, so I'd, mm. I'd say just keep the ball rolling, like put lots of money in there and give them the, give them the, give researchers the freedom to find out more because yeah. you know, ignorance is not a bliss. <laughs> and um and just preach <laughs> preach that shit and some of my own thoughts i would also like to see uh if they would stratify their people based on like a fitness how fit you are if you're a couch potato like how does oh, the, yeah. uh how does this well i suppose you? that would be that would just tie into bmi and stuff like that uh, they didn't do that no 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 and also they didn't they didn't look at like underlying conditions because uh because oh, I, okay. I forgot to say that the, 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 the people that they have tested for seroprevalence, these were the people that might have been diagnosed and stuff like that, but they were not hospitalized. So these are like the people who were kind of like in their houses without being institutionalized. This study also didn't include like uh, elderly people in the, they didn't include the nursing home people because that would obviously like skew the result. They wanted to kind of look at the, the population from the perspective was like oh. when you when you live in the household and stuff like that oh, you know? okay but they did they did include they did include healthcare workers and uh this uh, they would have higher levels they had a higher level but the highest levels was for people who were uh who were living with someone who has who had covid so yeah. if uh so these were like the top tier people of zero prevalence and then yeah. uh, and then uh, lower down were uh healthcare workers uh, if you work in the office, if you have working, if you've been working with a, in office with a person with COVID, then your seroprevalence was also higher. But when you kind of look at the overall, they average it at five percent. Yeah, yeah. And uh, another, the last interesting thing that I found in this paper was uh, this is a small little note. Remember when I said that the seroprevalence was like extremely low in infants, so the one point one percent. Yeah. Uh, they they say that. The lower prevalence in children might be due to the low expression of angiotensin converting enzyme 2. So basically the receptor oh, yeah. the receptor for uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, according to this paper is expressed uh, is has a lower expression in infants uh, than ha than has in adults. So perhaps this is why uh, this age group is also that's maybe we didn't see that much death in children. Well, you don't see that them affected that much by it as, so, as well. So this, so possibly yeah. could be because they don't have the receptor. Maybe oh. this is uh, this is something that they mentioned in this um, in this paper as well. So mm. if I yeah, if I just were to sum up, that was like I thought it was like I was just blown away by the way they designed the study. Like it was just go Spain. You did a good job. The congratulations <laughs> to all the Spanish people, and I know mm. our Spanish audience is gonna be delighted to hear that. Um, so I'm looking forward to see the two next investigations uh, coming yeah. out, the two next papers. 
Yeah, they don't, they go into much more detail in their findings, but I don't want to bore anyone with like talking about statistics. Yeah. And, I think you know, it's pretty good, pretty yeah. good summary. They, um, they're, they're currently doing a seroprevalence study where I am in Ireland as well. Um, oh, is your hospital so, involved? Well, they're trying to get it set up. Uh, so they're testing it in UCD. Um, but in my laboratory, we're also trying to set up the antibody test as well. Um, mm-hmm. We're not sure if we're going to be part of this seroprevalence study. Well, hopefully. So, Hopefully, my my father was involved. He got test. He was in the study, oh, okay. and they okay. asked my brother, but he wasn't in the country at the mo at the time. So, uh, traitor <laughs> says the guy who's in Holland as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, I they so when they were validating the tests, I got tested for antibodies as well. So I was negative. Um, oh, you're a negative. The, okay, I was negative. The only time I I did get tested for COVID that was when I started the job and I kind of had the sore throat, so I did get tested. But uh, the so, but I would have been surprised if I was positive because I never really did because the the COVID test was negative, so I didn't yeah. really think I would ever have it. Um, but it was crazy because one of the girls I worked with who got tested, her sister was positive, and she lived with her sister. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, it'd be very strange that you wouldn't have had antibodies because you lived with your sister. Yeah. Um, but she was negative for the antibody, even though she had lived with the, who someone who had was positive for the for the COVID. So um, okay. it was really crazy to think that maybe I'd, I'd, it's just it's just so unknown, really. We don't really know. Is it always antibody or is it somewhere else? But uh, yeah, it's just something to watch the space. I'd say a lot of seroprevalence are going to be done. Well, very interesting in America as well, where it's really blossoming. I was going to say that's a bad word. <laughs> <laughs> blowing up, maybe. Blowing up, yeah. Um, like blowing up like a 4th of July. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, uh, the, the a person, if according to the Spanish study, if the, if the person had a contact with a confirmed case in the household, and that was a household member, uh, 31 between 31 to 37 percent was uh, zero prevalence positive and that depends oh, on the so assay. it's it's so, only one in three chance really you get it you have the antibody uh, then yeah yeah well she well, said uh, that her sister did stay in her room most of the time so she wasn't interacting with her so yeah it can't right, it can't right, happen right. it's just uh i if it yeah. was me i think everyone would have got <laughs> got it I, i'm very bad care. i would have yeah. they'd i remember when i got tested and they said to me please stay in your room don't interact with everyone and i i was like in two or three hours in there i was like i because it's a type of tiny room and i was like oh my how am i gonna do this please god i'm negative <laughs> i would have went crazy like yeah Jesus. yeah it would be hard for you and yeah. then we would have to wait even longer for the podcast i suppose so well yeah uh, yeah yeah thanks thank god creator. thank god yeah. i didn't and we we can bless you with this brilliant podcast thanks the almighty for this finally the last thing I want to track is the we recently released a, a COVID tracker app here in Ireland, and I just wanted to go over some um, okay. misconceptions and uh, mistruths about the whole app, um, just to h- try and help people that download it as well uh, to do my part. Hopefully, I can convince you um, to do it. So I basically try to download it here in the Netherlands, and it's not available. No, it doesn't so... work. It's only working in. Um, I think it's only working in the Republic. I'm not sure if it works in Northern Ireland. Please, if someone from Northern Ireland is listening, please correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but yeah, it doesn't work anywhere else. Um. So, anyways, uh, so just I'm just gonna you're gonna play the role of the skeptic here, to, the skeptical person of the. Well, okay. you are skeptical, anyways, but you're gonna play the role of the skeptical 
person are like, I don't want to download it. So okay, why, uh, what would be your main reason for not to download it? Because I'd like to stay off the grid. I don't want the big brother to know where I am <laughs> all the time, tracing me. Uh, it's not that I do something illegal. I just want to, I just want to have my personal freedom for myself. And I don't want to share my data with everybody. I don't think, I think this could be used against me as well. Okay, you're playing the role a bit too well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be agree with me. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, uh, the big thing is they don't want, I don't want it to be tracking me. Um, Like, it's funny, they had a war for Whispers News. It's a parody article a website for those who don't know. And they're like, person who doesn't want to download app, but mm. uses Facebook, Snapchat instagram yeah. and all this so it's kind of funny that a lot of their apps are tracking them but then this is the one that crosses the line yeah so exactly. um basically so you you're in you have the bluetooth connection on and this is gonna uh keep a log of your close contacts um so basically this compiles the list of your comp of your close contacts by beacon so the the beacon it'll put it out uh from your phone through the bluetooth and then it'll identify your close contacts by this a string of numbers. Um, and these numbers change every 10 to 20 minutes. So uh, just say I, I'm in close contact with you. It'll put a beacon out. It'll identify that you are there. Um, mm -hmm. But then in another 10, 20 minutes, your beacon's going to change. So there's no, it's going to be completely randomized. I won't, it won't, it always changes. So there's no way of like, if I know your beacon number, I can track where you are at all time because it changes. That's how it works. Okay. So you won't be able to follow me no. and like strangle no, me in the dark hopefully not. Okay. Uh So okay. if the two phones are in contact, they exchange this active ID and then the list is stored on the phones for 14 days uh, of, all mm -hmm. this, of all the people you've been in close contact that. And then, yeah, it uses that to determine if you've been in closer than two meters than me for more than 15 minutes. Uh, so then if you test positive for COVID and are using the app, the HSC, which is the health service executive in Ireland, they'll ask mm -hmm. you to upload these random IDs that are stored on your phone that you've been in close contact. Mm -hmm. It'll be, it'll ask them to upload it to them. Uh, and in okay. order to do that, you need to give a six digit code uh, supplied by the HSC. You get it via text, but then it prevents people from cl falsely claiming they have, they are positive. So that will cause more disruption. So you can only do it if you're truly positive because um, the HRC will only let you upload it when you get a text. And once okay. these are so uploaded, the IDs are added to a list that are downloaded at daily. And then whoever, they'll be notified by mess text message that they've been in contact with someone who had been tested positive for COVID. Um, right. So basically as well, you don't need to upload it. Like if you don't want, if you're not comfortable still, even if you download the app and you press positive, you still don't have to upload it. You can still be like, Oh, please do if you can't do, but you don't need to upload But, like, it. it's, it's stupid and you're afraid of, like, contributing to the I greater know, good. Yeah. Like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. Uh, and as well, like, the, the worry about it tracking me and my location, like, the beacons are random. They're not tied to user identity. It doesn't require GPS access. So it's not going to track where you are. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't require location access. And even if it did, you can reject this with Android. I'm not sure about iPhone. I think you yeah. still can. Yeah, so do download it, this guys. Like, be be the part of a change, so we can get back to normal. Yeah, and like, everybody and, wants and even to enjoy and the life. Apple and Google have prohibited the public health apps from accessing GPS data. They're not like they don't want to give that data to like the government or whatever. So it and it yeah. is uh, random IDs. 
Uh, and you're not required to give your phone number if you download the app. It's only if you, no. and if you do, you only use by HSC if you're in a close context. So they're not going to use your phone for anything. They're not going to share with anyone. Yeah. Uh, and and it's all also the code has been uploaded to GitHub. So whoever is like better with coding and all that has looked at it and they said they are happy with it. It's not anything weird or unusual on it that's going to be used to track people. It's it's not going to be, and it wasn't noted for any privacy issues. So. I think because it's been so transparent about it, I don't think there's anything to worry about. Mm. Um, you should you should check the number of downloads and yeah, see they, how they, it's going if, if it's increasing. And another thing people are saying is like, what's the point of downloading it? You need like sixty percent of the population to download it for it to be effective. Uh, some people might say that. Well, actually, that's not true because models have shown that it can have an effect at all levels of uptake, no matter how little. Um, and it said, like, they, this paper found that even if 80% of people downloaded the app, that alone would be significant enough to suppress the pandemic on its own, even if they didn't lock down anything else. No. So that just shows so how keep... important it is, that how useful it could be used for people to actually re reduce... Uh, infection yeah. and stuff so island please collaborate please do this because i want to go home i want to visit my parents and i want to hang out with my friends and right now i can't because island is still orange yellow uh orange yeah a, a code orange or yeah code code orange in the netherlands i needed to go to yellow so i can visit everyone so green is enough i thought it was green uh no yellow is fine oh, okay it's yeah, i so think let's i this. think though uh yeah so when you if you do come home please download the app and uh and it's still though it still doesn't replace social distancing and face masks but it's still another useful way of um helping people monitor the disease okay, okay. so on that note we're going to end the first episode of skeptically inclined we would like you thanks for listening i hope you can still listen to us if you want to reach out to us, you can contact us on Twitter and uh, Instagram. Uh, on Twitter, it's at skeptically I, uh, skeptically spelt with a C. And on Instagram, it's skeptically inclined, which is also spelt with a C. Um, and you can also get in contact through email at skeptically inclined at gmail.com. Again, skeptically with a C, not a K. Be nice. Yeah, please be nice. Please be nice. We are. We are sensitive. Yeah, we are. We are. Do you have any last no comments to make, Tom? No, just stay curious, stay skeptical. Yeah. yeah. All right. See you guys. Bye. 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 bye.